I always compare it a bit to the Second World War. You know, like when you talk to people, I know if my oldest friend is 99, and when I talk to her, I say, it wasn't been awful in the war, because we now know it was 1939 to 1945, but it didn't know that in 1942. Yeah. And she said, yes, it was sort of... She said it was terrible because you didn't know how long it was going to go on for, but at the same time, you just sort of adapted to it and just realised, oh, we're in the war. So in the same way, I didn't know how long it was going to go on for, but I sort of adapted to, oh, well, I'm in this situation, really. And really... It took, really, 13 years, really, I suppose, before things started to turn a bit. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedians Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and this is Paul Foote. He is one of the most strikingly original, absolutely hilarious and fascinating comedians that there is in the world. I can honestly say if you've not seen him before, you have never seen anything quite like what Paul does. Um, I'm an enormous fan of his work from when I from the very beginning of my own career 13 years ago I was doing open spots in rooms that he was destroying and also in rooms that he was failing in in a very epic way we're going to talk uh, about some of the deaths the cataclysmic comedy deaths that Paul has suffered over the years in the pursuit of genuine excellence and you know I'm forever talking about risk and uh, and what it means to put yourself on the line Paul I think can speak far more than most as to what that really means. We're going to hear all about... I'm, I don't want to prep you too much for this. Peel back your ears and... Uh, oh, I should say as well, um, just a little warning. There is one point, maybe uh, 20 minutes in or so, um, where Paul's critical uh, analysis of his own work and writing practice becomes, I think, almost impenetrable to the casual listener and is probably appropriate only for those really, really hardcore listeners. So I have taken uh, a lead. There's about 40 minutes of that stuff, plus a bit of stuff about uh, Paul talking about his very unique dress sense and style on stage, uh, and I've put them into the Insiders Club. So if you're a member of the Insiders Club donating £2 or more a month, then you can really get your teeth into some... I mean, <laughs> I'm not, I don't know how best to describe it. I'm not even, you know, I sometimes like to put sort of morsels into the uh, extra material to encourage you to join up. This one is just like, look, if you're just a sort of lightweight comedy fan, this will absolutely do you. I hope it inspires you to hear more from Paul. If you're someone who is a serious nerd and you really want to hear some in-depth uh, description of Paul's seven different styles of comedy writing, uh, then get yourself over to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders and you can access the private podcast with not only extras from this, uh, episodes with Dara O'Brien, and James Acaster, Russell Howard and many, many more, uh, as well as numerous clandestine podcast projects, including your chance to pitch to interview me about the subject of your choice. You can do all of that at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. You know that. Now, here is, uh, I mean... I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where to begin. This is Paul Foot. Thank you for coming uh, to talk to me. On That's the show. right. We've uh, we worked together. The first time I encountered you was at those gigs at the Wheat Sheaf. Yes. Do you remember on Rathbone Place? The Wheat Sheaf is uh, the venue that I've played the most of all venues. How, do you have you any idea how many times you've played it? I haven't counted. Uh, I have counted all my 
gigs I've ever done in a book. Have you? single one, yes. Not, I don't know any other professional comedian who's done it. I've met lots of comedians who keep counts at first 50 or so and then they lose count. Yeah, I was one of them, I lost count, yes. And I've met quite a lot who kept a record later on but they can't really remember the beginning. But I kept all of them all noted down. So I could look in and find out how many I've done in the wheat sheaf. I did do an estimate a little while ago and reckon that probably with various different clubs that I've played there and different guises over the years, hmm, I don't know, hundreds. Have you any idea how many... Well, obviously you do know a specific figure, but without looking at your notes, do you know to the nearest hundred or to the nearest thousand how many gigs you've done in your career? I think it's... 4,700 or something, but I haven't, I can't remember. It's, it's definitely in the 4,000s, and I think it's getting towards 5,000. Why do you think that you specifically have kept a note of all of them? Given that you haven't encountered another comic who's done the same, what is it about recording them that appeals to you? I think it's just chance, really. When I started, I kept a note. I can't remember why, but uh, when I... I think it started because uh, I, I often, just like most comics, I had sort of a note on a scrap of paper of my first few gigs, and then I came across this book. It was a sort of, it's like an accountant's ledger, very old book with all like letters in, you know, like A B C D, you know, like a telephone book thing. And then I started to write it in there. I thought, oh, what can I use this book for? So it was really chance, really. And then I just kept carried on. So once I started, I carried on. And then I carried on with that when I was at university, my early gigs. And then I think when I um, started properly on the comedy circuit 22 years ago, it was very important to me, that book, because I would have such hard times, such tough gigs, that it was part of my psychological sort of... I would have to think, oh, that was a difficult gig, write it in, and I'd think, I'll do one more... And then I give up, sort of thing. Sometimes, sort of, quite literally thought that, and sometimes not quite as literally. But I always thought, well, keep going, get another one in the book. And, and then I would look back at what was in the book and think, remember that one? That one went well and that one went well and it sort of galvanised me. I suppose, given my knowledge of your, your style, your genuinely unique style of comedy... And I think, um, I think that's fair. Would you describe yourself as, as unique, as, as having a unique style? I suppose I haven't seen anyone else with the same style. It's important to note that when I started comedy, I never attempted to be different or anything like that. I just did the most obvious sort of comedy to me from the beginning. I just did what I wanted to do. And then everyone, from the very start, even when I was at university, and particularly when I started on the, on the comedy circuit in London, people said, oh, you're very different, and you're doing a different thing, it's all different. But I hadn't thought about it like that. I just did my own thing. I suppose there were, one of the reasons why it took me so long to get anywhere was that, the, amongst other things, my style of comedy... I suppose it's naturally rather shambolic and sort of amateurish and not slick. And in fact, I remember when I did some, I was doing some performance in Oxford 
and it must have been like three and a half thousand or four thousand gig or something. And I remember thinking, oh, that was four thousand gigs ago that I started in Oxford, all literally around the corner from this theatre that I'd done. And I listened to the cassette, I've got it on cassette, my first performance. And one thing I noticed was that 4,000 shows later, whatever it was, that I was no more slick than I was. <laughs> I had changed in many ways, all sorts of things, of course, had changed, but I wasn't slick, really. It was, there was no, it was essentially the same sort of voice. And I suppose it takes a long time to, to get that right because, because one performs now, I perform, and it's still shambolic and yet there's something behind it where people know that I know what I'm doing. Yes. And I think that takes a long time to get right. I think there's a lot of other reasons why it took me a long time. I think another reason is that I've always done all sorts of different things in terms of the comedy. I sort of, uh, when I started, I would do a, some character and I would do some made-up story and I would do something that was a bit more like observational comedy in my own sort of way and I would do surreal, weird things, all sorts of things. And I would often struggle to sort of work out... Um, ..you know, what my direction was... And so that also, I think, made it take a long time because I remember thinking that if I um, had less ability, then it would be easier in a way because I would just say, OK, this is what I do and I'll just focus on that. And you do... I, I saw that with lots of comedians um, when I was starting out who were less able than me I'm not, by the way, saying that I'm more able than all the comedians. I'm just saying there were ones who were less able than me and they just had their style and then that was, that's all they could really think of. They didn't have the imagination to think of all... To, so they would just f work on that and then they would become much better at that much more quickly than I was getting better at something much more complicated. I think... So what I do now, I think, is more complicated because... It now involves all sorts of different styles. In fact, it's really taken me all this time to really work out what the different things are and how to tie those all in together. So I've been working the last few days on a sort of perfect mix, in a way, like, a, like, like making some recipe of various different sort of styles of comedy, for want of a better word, that are then combined into one thing, and it's taken me a long time to work out how to make those all feel part of one thing. So I think um, I would sometimes do surreal things in the past and sometimes more observational, and I couldn't see any way of connecting those at all. They seemed utterly disconnected, and I found that very dissatisfying, unsatisfying in a way, because I would think, well... Do I just focus on this or do I focus on that? Or do I sort of say, oh, well, I could do a bit of this? And it, It's not my um, way to just sort of take it as it comes. Some artists, I think, would take it as it comes. I'm not saying that's a bad thing to do. That's the way they work. And they'll just say, oh, well, 
Um, just feel like doing a bit of this this month, and I'm doing a bit more of this. Sort of. well, I've always wanted to work out in a very anally retentive way how it all fits together. I studied math at university, and I suppose I wanted to, in a sort of very mathematical way, work out how it fit, um, how it fits together. Um, and so now I've got these seven strands that I've connecting together. And I've been working on how to connect those together and on what they are. Some of them, you know, are things I've invented anyway. So some of them are my own sort of style in a way. And then I'm connecting these seven things together. Can you identify... I'm fascinated that you kind of boiled them down to seven specific things. Could you tell me what those seven things are or your, your name, your way of identifying them? I suppose those I can. I'm nervous in a way to say because it sounds terribly academic and it honestly the listenership of this podcast will be absolutely frothing to hear an academic analysis a mathematical analysis of of the apparent surrealness and lunacy of the of what we might associate with with your work yes like you said there's 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 the absurdism and then the core underneath it the audience knows by now that there is something happening behind it and we'd love to dig into what those things are. So please okay. feel free to, to share them in this context. So I should point out, I don't spend all my time with working. You know, I do also, I do all the, the artistic side as well when I'm just roaming around my house after a few wines thinking of stupid ideas and things like that. So I don't spend all my time in some sort of left-brained, annually retentive thing, but I do spend some time, and I've been spending quite a lot of time on this recently. So I should also point out this none of this really relates to my new show. I've just written my new show, which is ready for the touring for the next two years. That's written, but whilst as soon as that's written, I start working on the next thing. Okay. Always working on the next thing. That's just how I work. Because otherwise I'd be so bored. And also and I know I'm going off in a tangent, I really... It's taken me a long time to, to learn that when I'm in performance mode, and if I'm, say, on tour, that it's absolutely brainless, that I, ha- that my, I, ha- I often say to myself, go to work, Paul, and go to work in that situation involves going to bed early and getting lots of sleep and then having a really good meal and then making sure I've had another good meal before the show and making sure I've had lots of water. That's my work. And I sort of feel like a sort of like some sort of like a racehorse, like a thoroughbred racehorse having to do all these things to get ready. But I also feel it feels weird because the artistic side of me isn't able to really do anything then. It's just literally the body but that's probably quite good and that's you mean specifically on on a night when you have a show on a night when I have a show or on a in a, doesn't necessarily have to be a night when I have a show it could be a night off from basically a long period of shows you know mm-hmm. generally when I'm in tour mode if I'm off for a few days then I can maybe go into another mode but yes it's probably quite good for me because I tend to be very often cerebral and thinking in the head and that just helps me just sort of, okay, it's all about my body and think about my body. It probably grounds me a bit. 
Anyway, so I've been working on these seven aspects and um, the first one, well, first I'll go over the main uh, sort of sweep from starting, well, it's actually start, I'll start with the simple one, which is observational. So I, I want to have good old-fashioned observational stuff in the show. To me, that's like, that's like when I mix in some um, conditioner into my soil. That's like the, yeah, okay. that's like the that's like the chalk. Yes, gotcha. Like the um, perlite going into my soil. I'm not familiar with the perlite. I've got I, well, I'm... perlite is uh, like a. It's an inorganic substance that's very light. Okay. And you can put it in if you've got a very heavy clay soil, so it just lightens. Got it. to prepare. Okay. And I'm thinking of like an example of something like that would be maybe, in terms of your observations, like I think of your fireman joke about firemen being show-offs. Yeah. That that's like a proper joke. Straightforward. Yeah, they're all proper jokes, I suppose. But, it, well, yes, but, yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's an observational thing. Can we? I, I feel, do you mind telling us the fireman joke now that I've teased it? I yes. don't want to butcher it. But <laughs> um, the firemen are—they're show-offs, aren't they? Because I mean, I mean, I mean, obviously they rescue people; they're brave, but they are show-offs. I mean, do they really need to slide down those poles? Why can't they just play cards on the ground floor, <laughs> and then uh, when when they have a call out, reach their fire engine by the method of walking? I've always loved that joke. (laughs) So that's observation. Sure, of course, of course. I mean, it's a slightly peculiar example because you you wouldn't necessarily imagine that one being blended into other things because it's sort of standalone. But anyway, that's observation. But but it's it's like a a joke joke. The observation is firemen are on the... They have firemen's poles. They don't need those if they want to fix. So that's like a, you know, a a common or garden observation. So that's... um, That's that... Um, what was I going to say? I that was thing number one. So that's your perlite. That's my perlite. And um, that's what makes it more... Yeah, it's my perlite. It makes it more palatable in a way. It's all part of a balance. Makes it more palatable for an audience. For an audience. It gives them something to grab onto. Yes, I suppose that you would say that, although one has to be very careful here in implying, especially you almost implied it by saying that's a proper joke, because it almost implies the other stuff is sort of less funny or is in some way sort of whimsical. And I've always spent a long time working on this and and this is not the case at all. Like in my last show, and this show actually, but in my last show I had all sorts of very surreal stuff in there but it was a very high laugh count with proper big laughs. It wasn't like, oh, he's done a proper joke now, we can all laugh and, oh, it's sort of whimsical. Sure, I understand what you mean. Let me uh, alter what I've said to say an apparently proper joke. It's a more accessible joke. It's more accessible, yes, in the sense that I suppose it's really, things are more accessible because you have to think about it less. There's less brain power, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Although I've done a lot of work in making comedy that's weird or different or uh, and and make, making it less 
uh, brain power required by the audience. Okay, to move to make the to make the joke more accessible, to make it to like make it this. more accessible. But because nevertheless, it is still going to be less accessible because there's a reason why when you watch live at the Apollo, because uh, because it's very easily accessible, whereas even some of my weirder things are just require more thought, even even from the certainly from a mainstream audience, because that audience has got to think this is a bit different. What is this? Yes. Perhaps if it's an audience, if it's my audience who come to all my shows, they don't have to put that much thought in because they're used to having those thoughts. It's not that hard, really. Could, could you give me an example of a bit that is that would suit your audience more than it would suit a Live at the Apollo audience? Um, well... Um, an example would be um, when I have my disturbances in a comedy when I read from the back of a card and um, uh, one of them is um, well this is often one I, I start with if I'm doing these disturbances and I read it from the card and reading it from the card is part of how it works it's not because I don't know it um, <laughs> There are various levels of homophobia. The top level is when you attack someone just because they're not homophobic. (laughs) (laughs) And then it goes on a bit more. So that is something that my audience would find very easily accessible. It is is very simple. It's not complicated, really. Um, And indeed, most audiences, if I'm going and playing... Um, I don't really do club gigs, but if I was playing one of these cabaret nights or one of these sort of unusual sort of nights where I'm normally a closing act or or something in some theatre somewhere, perhaps uh, one would imagine a lot of your listeners would go to those sort of places. Again, it would be very straightforward. Um, But if I was in a very mainstream situation, like Life at the Apollo... Um, and it probably would go all right, um, and it may go very well indeed, but it does involve people just suddenly thinking, we've got to think this is different. Yes. He's reading off... A, well, even ignore the reading off the back of a card. Just just the, the, the structure of the thought is different. Yes, And I perhaps don't notice very much sometimes because, to me, it it's so mainstream and accessible by my standards I don't really barely think about it it really only I mean a little while ago this gives an example really a little while ago um this was over a year ago now about February last year I was about to go to Australia and I wanted to practice a couple of bits um because I I knew I was going to perform them in Australia on a television show and I knew that that audience would be a bit more mainstream than my theatre audience. Not much more, really. They're a very clued-up audience there in Melbourne. Anyway, so I went to perform at a club um, in central London on a Saturday night. You know, it was like an f- open spot, five minutes of practice. And I did one of the bits that's the most accessible from my past show to open... And it just, you know, it was left them cold. And indeed, 
once, if that, it was too late, I, I bailed out and went to something else, but they, they, I'd lost them. It was quite interesting that despite all those years of experience, you know, if, if you just completely lose them, there's nothing you can do, really. I mean, you don't get upset about it, you keep your composure, but there's absolutely nothing you can do because... So that was a reminder to me of just how far out some of the things are, which I think, oh, that's very, you know, it's quite not one of the... It wasn't one of the weirdest things in my show at all. So that led to me thinking, well, if I do get to Melbourne, perhaps I should do this bit of blah, blah. So actually, I, it led indirectly to a great success in Melbourne when I did, chose the right piece and it all went very well. And that probably wouldn't have happened if I hadn't gone on and mm. had that sort of night of failure. But it just goes to show, I mean, it just reminded me, because I hadn't played some, a gig like that for quite a long time, maybe a couple of years, I had played my own theatre gigs. I'd played those nice cabaret nights when I'm headlining and getting paid quite nice money and it's not really a club gig, it's like a theatre thing in some unusual thing, you know. But I hadn't played a proper club gig. And, you know, and it's, it's interesting for me because um, when I watched the other comedians on, it, they seemed like a very easy audience and they seemed, oh, yeah, simple, and they were just doing simple things and everyone was laughing away and I thought, this is... This looks easy, but it was very dangerous. That's the danger for someone like me, because it looks, oh, yeah, they're all right, but what I'm doing immediately is just too far. And even if I were to do the fireman on the poles or one of my very accessible bits, like, oh, uh, when you get a piece of cake, why is it you always have to mention that it's moist? I probably would have been all right if I had done that that night, but not necessarily, because even that can be too much sometimes for those very mainstream yes. audiences. Yes. They just think, who is this man? What's he doing? Don't like it. Uh, we don't think he... And, and somehow they can't make that... We spoke about um, how I've managed to look like I don't... What I don't look like I know what I'm doing, but I sort of do, but mm. they sort of misread it. As he mm. just doesn't know. I've had that... Um, with in recent years with some audiences in very mainstream situations they just think who is it I don't understand who, who is it what's he doing let's put a pin in that I'd like to hear about the other we're on thing oh, yes. number one so we had observational and we're going to leave it there with number one from Paul's seven styles of writing as I said go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders if you would like to know more about those because they are so rich and complex and layered. I think it's better to save them for people who are really going to enjoy wrangling with those. So uh, we will turn down the volume on those and uh, pick up uh, uh, with something a little bit more accessible. How does it, in what ways does it benefit you to analyse them to that extent? Well, um, as I always say to Aaron when we're working together... Um, and he often he won't go in for things like this he'd drive him around the bend um, because we've often discussed how he is a creative person but he's very much in the middle whereas I tend to go very left brained or very right brained I will be incredibly only retentive and complex about something or incredibly just like mad thoughts coming out, and I'm like that in real life as well. I'm incredibly organised and 
but also incredibly disorganised all at once, but never in the middle. Anyway, so, um, the, so as I would say to him, the justification in all of this is the results, and so the justification, because, you know, no one cares about this. If I'm doing a show, no one's going to analyse it to this extent. Uh, not Definitely not the audience, mm-hmm. not Aaron, not even me. And obviously, once one's gone through a particular phase of writing, you lose, leave all this behind anyway, and you go into the next phase of editing, and it's totally forgotten. So the, re- the real reason it's there is because I am working out a way to create something where I have all of these different muscles that I've developed and put them all together so we have a richness and, and an and ability to hit lots of notes. Um, so that is, that's what it's about to me. And, and, I, and I have chosen, I mean, I went through in great detail every sort of thing I even considered could have sort of straightforward jokes. I don't mean observational jokes, I just mean actual sort of jokes. I could have that in it if I wanted to. I could write jokes like one-liners and put that in and I decided against it. Uh, I decided I didn't have to put everything in. It doesn't have to be the complete panoply of the whole of comedy. It just has to be the complete panoply of my comedy. And I think I've reached the stage where I believe, and I can't be certain, that I've created all the types of things I needed to create, like the school day school day style personal that was something came to the last show mm. literal surrealism also from the last show so uh, these things all had to be created and at the time they all seemed to me because I do tend to get like that they all seemed to be like the big breakthrough in the sense of ah oh, that's going to be that's it now I found my thing I'm always going to just do this I'm going to do literal surrealism from beginning to end it's so much stronger than everything else and then I had to back off a bit and realise that they all have their different strengths and they're all bringing something else. So that's what it brings to me. And up to now, I've never done comedy, which has brought in all of those aspects. Um, What is achieved, because the audience won't notice, but I think they will notice... um, There will be a different feel to it. I mean, it's a bit like... um, it's a little bit like if one improvises on stage or there's a bit of the show that you keep a bit loose so that you can mm-hmm. maybe just improvise. Um, now, um, an audience doesn't really notice that. And indeed, indeed, part of one's skill is to perform the bits you've done many, many times before as if they're just being said of, you know... So actually that's sort of irrelevant because it should all feel like that anyway. But I suppose... (laughs) I suppose that if you improvise something, it does bring a different quality, Mm. I suppose. I suppose that's what I'm doing. I'm bringing different qualities. Okay, I've got myself in a big muddle there about the improvisation <laughs> because um, because I was going to say that by having something that's in the show that is a bit improvised, you're bringing a new quality. But I'm now disagreeing with myself on that one because I don't think that's necessary. Because I think if you have the sufficient skill, 
that you should be, you don't need to improvise. In fact, the more I do comedy, the less, the fewer risks I take in the, I have again, a complete um, dichotomy between when I do my secret shows, if it's a secret preview, it's a bit different, but if it's just one of my normal secret shows, I will have some paper-thin sort of theme with some vague story, very little preparation, then I just make it all up in front of the audience for two and a half hours. Mm. 40 people in a room, all my most devoted connoisseurs, my, my fans. And that is something you wouldn't do that in front of more than about 40 people, even if they were all fans, because if you did it in front of 200 fans, even though they're all fans, the dynamic changes as soon as you get about 200 more than 100, it, the expectation is simply you couldn't improvise the whole thing to that extent, I don't think, as successfully. So, but anyway, I would... So I, I'm capable of improvising all that. So I would do that on a Tuesday. I might be improvising a whole show for two and a half hours. The next night, I'll be doing one of my tour shows and one doesn't want to give away too much of the tricks of the trade, really, but I don't take any unnecessary risks mm -hmm. because it's not necessary. And, and a lot of the things, there's a lot of improvisation in the show, but it's improvisation in the sense that I improvised. There were all things that I improvised once yeah. and are now recreated with acting. And, and, and they're often recreated better than they were the first time. Yes. You know, I sometimes there would be things that appear to have gone wrong in the show and it's based on something when it really did go wrong and I act it, I act it going wrong better than when it went wrong in the first place and I wasn't even having to act it because it really was going wrong. Um, so there's no risk taken. But at the same time, if someone says... Uh, Oh, oh, excuse me, mate. I know it's your, I know, I know it's your tour show, and uh, you're filming this for a DVD. But did you know it's my daughter's 18th birthday party today? I'm more than capable of improvising because I've just improvised for two and a half hours the night before. Sure. So I'm not going to think. Oh, I don't know what to say. Yes. So to me, that's just a muscle. Um, but it, to me, I think it's a improvisation is a muscle that shouldn't be needed. Or shouldn't be used unnecessarily. You know, that's my personal view. Anyway, so that's why uh, that's what I'm creating this sort of thing with the seven types of comedy that are blended together because it will give a feeling. It gives it. Um, so no, but people won't necessarily say, "Oh, that was hyper surrealism there." Oh, that was more observational. But it will bring a different feel. All those things bring a feel to it. <laughs> So this is Paul. Uh, I hope you don't mind me uh, removing some of that stuff and placing it elsewhere. I think it's the right thing. I think uh, people who hear it in the Insiders Club will uh, agree that that's the best place for it. We're going to go on to talk more about how Paul toured to absolute silence. We're going to find out how he likes to treat each gig like a dinner party. And we're going to find out how performing to 15 million people on the American TV show Last Comic Standing cured him of his nerves about performance. So all of that to come. 
a couple of bits of correspondence for you. You can see Paul at the Edinburgh Festival this year. If you're going to be there, he's 7pm daily at the Underbelly on Cowgate. Uh, and you can come and see me doing my brand new show, End Of, which I'm pleased to report absolutely smashed a preview last week. And I had that gig that makes you go, we've got it, we've got it. There's still work to do, but we've got it. That's the bones, that's the shape, that's the skeleton. It's all going to be good. So I'm very excited. Come and see that at 2.50 daily at the Liquid Rooms Warehouse uh, on Victoria Street in Edinburgh. So a couple of emails. Listen, I've mentioned before in the last few episodes about this lovely thing which has been happening whereby people are uh, putting their money where their hearts are and very kindly offering to donate extra to the Insiders Club in order that someone who can't afford to join it has the opportunity. This is probably one of the things that has most made me happy in the entire life of this podcast. An anonymous police officer legend says... I'm currently paying £5 a month. We'll double it to a tenner to pay for someone else who can't afford it. Can I ask, though, that the person you choose to receive it is someone who you think would benefit from knowing that the person who is paying is a police officer? Maybe they've had a bad experience with the police. Maybe they think we're all unfeeling automatons. Maybe they're just into weed and they've never had any interaction with the police, but by default are mistrustful. Maybe they've got some form of uh, mental ill health and would benefit from knowing that there are many, in fact, most police officers who care about them. I will leave the choice in your judgment, whoever they are, if you could ask them to pay it forward in some way, obviously not financially. That is all that gentleman wanted to say. If you would like to be the recipient of that, if you match the bill, then please send me an email with the subject line smeared myself in pollen uh, if you'd like to join in um, and uh, and access the hive um, then uh, at, at the expense of this very generous person I, I the reason I mention this specifically is I, I you know I, I'm going to put that as a broad offer and if you are someone who you think would benefit from a little bit of kindness or generosity specifically from a police officer what a lovely thing and um, then please get in touch subject line smeared myself in pollen Info at comedianscomedian.com and I will pass on your membership, let's say, to the first person who fits the bill because uh, I think that's fair and that'll reward you for uh, getting in quick. Um, more people have done this. Uh, this is the best thing, guys. So um, someone else has done it as well. So even if you're not a police person, email me, subject line, smeared myself in pollen and um, we will we will endeavour to get you into the hive and I'll, I'll start keeping a list of people who would like to do that. I think that's better than kind of asking... Uh, on the Facebook group to say, hey, comment below if you can't afford it. That seems ridiculous. So um, thank you. One more listener email. Vicky says, just wanted to say I think the ComCom is brilliant. I've listened to it for a shameful amount of time, finally stepped up with some financial appreciation. Don't know if it's because of your previous therapy, but you're good at pinning people down or bringing them back to authentic answers. Thank you, Vicky. It always strikes me how consciously manipulative of people's emotions comedians are. A slightly scary bunch. I mean, that's a really good point, isn't it? Let's, uh, let's maybe chat about that in the post-amble. We do train ourselves to change how people feel. I think of, um, I think of Tom Parry and his thing about how comedy uh, isn't... A, you know, a lot of comics try to make audiences laugh and think, and he always tries to make audiences laugh and feel. And I suppose that does lend you a skill set which you need to wield pretty responsibly because, yeah, I mean, I've often thought... Why should it be that people with most charisma get to be leaders? I mean, maybe not currently the leader of our country. Maybe that's a special case. But um, it does seem odd, doesn't it, that if you can make people believe in you, then uh, you can lead them. Uh, maybe the world would be a very different place uh, if we were all a little bit more rational. But thank you, Vicky. Um, 
she says, I hardly get to see any comedy. I live on the Gold Coast, which is like Love Island, brackets, I think. Haven't actually watched it. Don't think it's on over here. <laughs> well, there we go. Um, thank you very much to Vicky. Thank you to our anonymous police person uh, and everyone else who has been supporting the show and getting all that sweet extra content. Now let's get back to the final part of this episode with Paul Foote. <laughs> That feel when it's when all of those seven things are added together and you have a hypothetical perfect show for you, you achieve exactly what you meant to achieve. What what is what is that when you say that that kind of richness, all of those things happening at the same time? What is it about that that excites you as an artist? Well, I suppose what excites me is that all these things I've been working on which are all um, exciting discoveries um, can be combined. Most of them, you know... I mean, of course, I'm not going to be arrogant to say that I invented all that we know, but I'm sure other people have done things similar, but they're certainly... I've invented these things. I'm not saying I'm the only person to have invented them. Fantasy thing is I... I can't remember seeing anyone else do it quite in that way. Maybe some other people do, but I that was my thing that I came up with. I, I decided to do that. I've never really taken much influence from anywhere else. I've never really... I've seen, I suppose, quite a bit of comedy because I worked in the club circuit for a long time, but I didn't take much notice of it. Most of it washed over me. But um, I never saw anyone do that. And um, so that, that's... Direct injection is my... I'm not saying I'm the only person who's done some stupid thing like that. Other people would have done stupid things like that and called, given it a different name or not named it, but that was my thing. That observational comedy, I don't think I could argue that I invented that. <laughs> um, school days style personal is my way of describing something that lots of other people, I'm sure, have done. And uh, literal surrealism... I'm not aware of anyone else who's done anything quite like that in that way, but the problem, I'm sure there have been, I don't know. I create my own things, and then um, uh, surrealism, you know, and hyper-surrealism are things that people would have been doing for a long time. Um, so, yes, that to me, that's the excitement, and then the excitement is then putting all that together, because then I've got... You would have noticed that I had um, 24 bits... Added up to, um, well, that's 24, which is uh, six laughs per minute is four minutes, you see. Um, I used to work on the basis, with my last show, I worked on the basis of four and three-quarter laughs per minute, <laughs> which is which is uh, the limits, really, of how many laughs you can do in a minute because people have to have time. You have to say something, and then people have to then laugh at it. You can't do 100 laughs per minute doesn't matter how good you are, because <laughs> it's not possible to go, and then everyone will laugh, and then, you know, so. Uh, but then I have discovered a way with the new show of sort of getting um, some extra, not big major punchlines, because you can't really increase very much the number of major punchlines, but some more minor little laughs going in there as well. Um, in, in between the, the big punchlines, uh, I've got it up to six laughs per minute 
And then that's uh, 26 fours, uh, 26, uh, 24 divided by 6, that's four minutes. And then I've calculated that with a one-hour show, which I'd much rather was 50 minutes, I don't like to keep them too long. And that's another thing that's taken me a long think time to work on. And I think this is the first time, fingers crossed, that I've ever achieved it in this new show that I've just written, is a show that isn't too long. Because previously, I've always had shows that have been too long. And often, I've had a devastating amount of what Aaron and I call creep up, which is I go and do a show in Edinburgh Festival. I remember doing a show in the Edinburgh Festival. It was actually the show that I've just finished, um, which was called uh, Tis a Pity, She's a Piglet. And I remember the first time doing it in Edinburgh, and it was about 40 minutes. That was the show over. Uh, thank you very much, good night, and obviously I had to come on and do a little an encore. I did something, whatever I did, you know, to make sure I had sort of proper length of show. And then within two or three shows, we were saying, well, we don't really need so, such a long encore, and then after three or four shows, we don't really need the encore now because things were getting a bit longer as, you know, I sort of played with the ideas more and got better at getting bigger laughs. And then... By and then we're saying actually it's getting quite and actually it's getting towards an hour and we could probably cut that bit because that's not working as well as we thought. Anyway, so if you were to actually calculate, I did an analysis of it, how long the show would be if one didn't cut anything out, one just allowed it to. It was a ratio of about one point five or one point six, so about one point six times longer than it started. So. So that meant that my last show, despite starting at 40 minutes, and despite the fact that lots of those things in that 40 minutes had been cut, was always running to an hour and five minutes, <laughs> which is fine, no. but I'd rather it was a bit shorter. So this show, I've worked on very hard, and the next show, but this one that I've just written, image conscious to make it so that it's not too long. Anyway, so therefore I've calculated with the next show, which won't come out until 2020, that um, uh, four minutes of when I come on, I just tend to mess around with the audience, do something silly that just warms them up. And um, um, some comedians will come on and say, in that very American sort of style, will come on and say, Good evening, well, you know, and then just go straight into the comedy. And I had thought about doing that in that way, and then I thought, well, I'm very good at that sort of coming on and saying, oh, what a great atmosphere it is. Isn't it a good atmosphere? <laughs> or what, that's what I did in the last show. And often it wasn't a good atmosphere, and by the end of it, it was a good atmosphere. Yes. But, and I felt um, that's something I'm good at, I can inject an audience. Sometimes in one of those, some of those quiet art centres, you know, in a, a timid audience, and I can make it into a gig. And I thought, why, why work against myself? You've got to play to your strengths. Always have that four minutes to... Sometimes it's not so necessary if you're in Australia or something, they're really up for it in Perth, and you can just cut it to two minutes because they're mm -hmm. kind of ready for you to get on. Mm -hmm. But certainly in some art centres, are very useful. So four minutes of that... Four minutes um, of breathing time, because although I've mentioned writing those comedy in a very dense way, some of them will be kept dense, some of them need a bit of air to breathe, and 
uh, two one-minute pauses. That's another thing. <laughs> uh, they're not literally pauses, but they're moments when I allow the audience not to laugh so much. And that's another thing that I've achieved, I think, with this show, which I've done a few times now, and now I appear to have achieved it, as opposed to any previous show. In previous shows, I would always go by the um, maximum, just, just, you know, seems obvious, really, just try and be as funny as you can from beginning to end. Surely, if you're going to be as funny as you can from beginning to end, you're going to get the best results. Well, not necessarily. I mean, you do get good results, but I would often find there would be times in the show when people would just lose concentration for a bit because they just couldn't laugh anymore. They'd been laughing so much. And then I decided to bring that into my control. I will decide when they can have a pause from it. I think one of the reasons I held back from that for so long is because I was um, trained in the club circuit. And in the club circuit, you're constantly, you've got to keep coming up with something, saying something funny or you're going to be off, you know. And so it took me a long time to get comfortable with the idea that, yeah, it's okay to have a minute when they don't laugh so much and we just all ease off. And they know that I know that that's okay. Everyone knows. Um, so those are very important. And it hugely um, increases the um, results of the, uh, the, the effects of the show. So, you know, it's a bit like... I don't know, it's a bit, you know, it's a bit, you know, by easing off. You let them breathe, you let, let them, them recover. It's like, like having a piece of music, I suppose, where you have some quiet bits and loud bits. The loud bits have more effect. So, um, and, and when you talk about the results, when you, like, you want an audience to be, you want to be as funny as you possibly can for, for, the, for the whole hour. You want the audience to laugh. What does that do for you? Kind of apart from apart from satisfying your artistic intention that they are you have done what you set out to achieve. Yes. What what is it about that 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 is satisfying? Like, does it make you happy? Um, no, I wouldn't say so. Yes, I mean, to some extent, it makes me happy because uh, it makes me artistically happy as a creator. Um. What I would say is that perhaps, um, perhaps I'm unusual in this sense, in that I don't think I function on a huge amount of adrenaline when I'm on stage, as some performers do, most performers do. Um, I used to get very, very nervous for many years. And ten years ago, I did a big thing on television, millions of people watching, and it just cured me of it all. What was, what was that? Was that last uh, comic standing? In oh, America. okay. Oh, yes, I'd completely forgotten you did that. Yes, um, but you know, millions of people watch it. I remember doing um, a piece of comedy, and I even messed up the beginning of the joke. This is um, fifteen million people watching, and um, but I was sufficiently experienced that I had sort of just improvised a slightly different wording, and, mm -hmm. and so no one even noticed. And then people would often come up to me in the street in America and say, oh, we saw you did that, it was ever so funny. They had no idea that I'd messed it at the beginning completely. And I remember thinking, I've done that in front of 15 million people, why be nervous anymore? And so I have never been nervous since then, you know, and I got, I remember getting back off that plane from Los Angeles and I was in front of 200 people somewhere in Soho and I thought, well, I'll do it, you know, and, you know, if they... 
you know, if they don't like it or there's some problem with you, I don't understand, you know, when you think about it logically, there's no logical reason to be nervous. There's logical reason to give it the respect it deserves and to prepare properly for it, but there's no logical reason to be nervous because if they're a nice audience, they're going to like it, and if for some reason they're all horrible people, then it's up to them, isn't it? I mean, if you went to the analogy I'd give is, if you went to a dinner party, you wouldn't be nervous about what it's going to be like at the dinner party. You would go to the dinner party hoping it's going to be a nice dinner party, and if they're all nice people, you'll have a lovely time at the dinner party and you'll tell some of your anecdotes and everyone will laugh and say, what a lovely evening. But if you go to the dinner party and there's some really aggressive, nasty people there who could interrupting your anecdotes, and well, you don't get no point getting nervous about it, and you wouldn't blame yourself for it going home thinking, oh my god, my anecdotes didn't go well. You just think, oh well, there weren't some very nice people there. I don't think I'll bother going back to that dinner party. You know, it's the same thing, really. So, um, so no, don't get nervous. So it's not a huge amount of adrenaline. I can eat before, just, in fact, I have to eat before I go on stage. I had a big meal and, you know, keep my energy up and I perform. And I'm like a technician on stage. I think, obviously, I look all crazy and like I'm all mad and, you know, coming up with it all off the top of my head and going crazy. But of course, uh, there's a lot of preparation that's gone into it, as we know from this conversation, and also um, I might look like I'm being all crazy and having a crazy time, but I'm a technician, really. I'm thinking um, there's, a, there's a quiet Paul who's watching the performing Paul and saying, OK, um, this bit's going, going, going on long enough now, we need to move to the next bit or, or whatever. Or this bit's a little, little bit tricky, maybe they're not going for this, perhaps I need to think about doing this or that, or this is going really well, I'm just, you know, just want to get to the end now without making any mistakes. And I would say, like everything to do with performing, I think performing is a mass of contradictions. And in a way, the less you analyse it, the better, because if you analyse it too much, you go mad. Because when you perform, you're at once um, taking it very seriously, but at once not taking it seriously at all. You're at once putting a huge amount of effort into it and all at once not putting any effort into it. You all at once care, but don't care. Um, it's all these things. All And so, and also I'm sort of enjoying it. I'm loving it. Well, why would I do that? It's a job if I didn't enjoy it. But I'm also simultaneously sort of hating it because I want to get to the end and to say, I've done that and I didn't make any mistakes. And there's such a relief in coming off stage. And often I will go to the back, because I often do my uh, meet and greet with the audience, and I'll go to the back and Aaron will be at the back, who I've written a show with and who's, he's been, he's very invested in it as well. He's sort of living and breathing every moment of it, watching. And, um, and I'll go to see him at the back and he's there as my tour manager as well. And I'll often say, oh, I didn't make too many mistakes tonight. And that will be my take on it. So it's quite level-headed. It, it won't be, um, oh, wasn't that great? Oh, oh, I'm walking on air. Nor will it be, oh, I'm so depressed. No, it will just be, I'm quite measured. Um, sometimes I might say, oh, 
maybe a little bit disappointed about this or pleased with that, but it's all very much in the middle. And I've certainly learned that a long time ago is that um, however one feels it's, how one feels it's gone as a performer is sort of irrelevant because how it feels to an audience is much more in the middle. What I've learned is, is that little fluctuations will seem big to me, mm -hmm. smaller to Aaron, who knows the show, and even smaller to uh, the actual audience. So, um, so yes, often people are surprised they come off stage and they expect me to be all full of adrenaline and I'm quite calm and just, oh, thank you very much for coming, and, you know, because I, I've just done it. And obviously there's a bit of adrenaline and there's a lot of energy, physical energy, as I race around. But it's not all a huge amount of adrenaline, I don't think. I just go and do it. And just um, and then I feel satisfied at having done a good job. Um, but I feel satisfied about it in the way that anyone would feel satisfied about something which is not only a job, it's also a hobby. Uh, and it's my passion and my love that I... But it certainly doesn't make me feel happy in a... Um, oh, I feel so unhappy... Really, uh, underneath, but it, oh, it brings me joy to do it, but I'm so unhappy, really, or anything like that. Because when I went into comedy 22 years ago, I said to myself, and I was very unhappy at the time, really, for various reasons, but I said, I'm not going into comedy as a therapy. I said, if there's anything that I'm not happy about, I'll deal with that. That's separate. That's my private pool that I'll deal with. And, and performing is not a therapy. Um, so... Why? Why did you make that decision? Do you think? Well, it's entirely sensible not to. It seemed entirely sensible to me that uh, if I had something that I wasn't happy with in my life, uh, not to mask it with sort of something else covering it that sort of made me feel a bit better because that wasn't going to really get to the root of it. Um, so. Uh, so no, when I perform, there's not. It's not covering up anything that I'm unhappy with, and nor is it the other way. If it's for some reason there's something I'm disappointed in the show, it's not going to drag me into a huge low, because you know I still have my normal pool, pool underneath it all. And you know, at the end of the day, I've got to remain in some way a little bit detached from it, or else I'd go completely mad. So, um, so that's how I feel after performing it. That's my satisfaction. When you when we started talking, you made reference to the the times when you had to kind of look back at your your notes to remind you certain gigs that were, had made you that hadn't worked. Yes, you know de deaths we might call them. Mm. And I suppose I would imagine, due to the iconoclastic nature of your comedy, that you might have suffered more deaths than most. Oh, in, terrible! In number. the creation of your your, your now very high functioning persona. Oh yes. Style. Oh, terrible. I mean, it's, most uh, professional entertainers or amateur ones will say, "Oh, you know, I've had." You know, most will have been through the thing when they, it was a bit difficult, and I mean, there's various types, aren't there? It's when it's a bit difficult, and you get to the end, it's a bit underwhelming, and, and then there's the one where you just you know boot off after four minutes or something. And there'll be, I think, most people will have gone through that, that's happened what was it, once or twice or a few times. I went through it, God knows how many times, scores of times, terrible number of times, um, things like that would happen. 
um, and real nastiness and all sorts. So yes, it was it was hard, you know, um, and yes, it was it was really difficult, and it was took a long time as well. It was I always compare it a bit to Second World War, you know, like when you talk to people. I know if my oldest friend is 99, and when I talk to her, I say, it wasn't been awful in the war, because we now know it was 1939 to 1945, but it didn't know that in 1942. Yeah. And she said, yes, it was sort of... She said it was terrible, because you didn't know how long it was going to go on for, but at the same time, you just sort of adapted to it and just realised, oh, we're in the war. So in the same way, I didn't know how long it was going to go on for, but I sort of adapted to, oh, well, I'm in this situation really and really um it took really 13 years really i suppose before things started to turn a bit that's an incredible amount of time to have hold of some some thread of i'm capable of of being original and excellent and making people cry with laughter but for 13 years to not necessarily have a, a sense maybe of how reliably you can grab hold of that thread every night. Yeah, it was it was hard. How on earth did you manage to keep going for 13 years? Were you able to compartmentalise the tougher gigs? Could you come off stage and think, well, I've got my private life, you know, in the way that you can I now? I suppose so. Not so much because, because these things were off the scale, you know. <laughs> I mean, I've heard some stories. So, so <laughs> uh, what I talk about now... Um, is I've you know I'm doing a tour show or some show in some nice place in Dulwich Art Centre whatever it is, and you know we're talking about oh that it, 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 most things just go well and it might be oh I was really pleased with that bit went really well and it might be all oh, that little bit yeah, it did feel as if it went on a minute or two too long but it's minor these are minor things in that the audience probably didn't notice much, but I would notice, and it might make me feel a little bit, tiny bits, oh, a bit down, oh, yeah, I did go on too much, that, yeah, maybe, actually, I need to reword that bit, you know, a little bit. But these things are experiences that are so terrible that, um, you know, you can't fail but to be affected by them psychologically because it is just psychologically traumatic to be on stage and to have people booing you or everyone just in silence and then someone shouts get off at the back or something I mean it's simply traumatic you can't escape that and um, and I found in recent years I don't have many gigs like that but it can occasionally happen I'm in some situation where I'm just uh, it's different now because um, I have the confidence to sort of not care in the way I did before and to know it's not so important and I don't need the money and it doesn't, you know, it's, it's diff- it is different to how it was. Uh, but nevertheless, there are a few. And I've noticed that if Aaron or Ian are there, they are much more traumatised at the time than I am. I just, OK, that happened. And they'll be a bit traumatised and sort of, you know... There was one about a year ago with Aaron and he said, oh, I just want to go home now, you know. That pissed me off what happened to you there, Paul. And I was a bit more like, that's OK, I can take it. My, you know. But then he was sort of over it within an hour or so. That was just made him pissed off. And he, mm. Whereas I, 
this is even in, you know, in recent times, a year ago, I went through a, a day of just trauma because I had been through a psychologically tra traumatic experience, like being in a car crash. I'm trying to, sorry, that was the wrong thing. Someone's been in a car crash, and I didn't mean to be flippant and equate that to terrible injuries or something. But anyway, it's like being in some sort of terrible in incident. Um, so, um, yes, it was immensely difficult. I suppose I just had to dig deep into myself and I suppose I would have had to have continued to dig if, uh, for however long it lasted. What I do know is that it got to a point where once success came, I wasn't able to dig like that anymore. Um, and what I mean by that is... Um, so 2010, I went to Australia for the first time, and to cut a long story short, it was a great success. I was in a 100-seater capacity, 35 loyal fans the first night. Next night, bit of word of mouth, 70 people. Night after that, sold out. By the end of the run, uh, performing in a 360-seater venue for all the people who were pass holders who all had to buy tickets because you couldn't get in for love or money, and it was all a massive success. 360 people hanging off my every word. I'd never performed to 360 people before who were all my audience, you know, my crowd. And it was just such an experience. This was the taste of this, what it would be like to be a touring artist. And then uh, I went back to Britain, flew on the aeroplane, all lovely flights, and it was all, wow, this is... I've flown back from Australia and it was like, oh, this is a whole new world. And then I get back and I've got some club gigs. I've got a very small number left in the diary before I basically retire from it in 2011, actually, not 2010. And um, that you, you had planned, you hadn't booked yourself any more gigs in the UK because you were Yeah, I mean, I had already, I was already going to sort of retire from it that summer anyway. So it wasn't something that happened because of Australia. But anyway, I got back and I had a few of these still to do. And I was doing one of them in this uh, comedy club place. And um, it was going fine. But then there's this woman at the front and she's on her phone. And I said, excuse me, but you're on your mobile phone. And she says, so I'm a lot more interested in listening to you or something like that. And I dealt with it completely professionally and I made fun of her and did whatever I needed to do to take control of the gig and all that stuff. But before that, before going to Australia and all those things, I would have dug so deep. I would have, like, played every possible trick. I'd have um, played the sort of clown as I went into the audience, like, begged with her mm -hmm. to, like, oh, you'll love my humour, you know. And I'd, I'd have... Um, <laughs> I'd have... Um, done some improvisation when I'd take the phone and speak to the person on the end of the phone and then, like, get them to like the humour or whatever. I'd have done everything. I'd have done some crazy anarchic thing to do, you know. But uh, I suddenly thought, do you know, I'm in front of 50 people or whatever it is, 100 people in this room, and they haven't paid to see them. They haven't come specifically to see me. They're nice people, most of them. Ten of them are a bit rotten, and this woman is the rudest of the lot. And you know, I'm going to be professionally, but I can't be bothered. I can't. I haven't got. Not. I can't be bothered. But I didn't have any more that ability to dig into some great hole in my psyche. 
that wasn't there anymore. I just thought, okay, stuff it. You know, I was performing to 360 people four days ago in Melbourne, hanging off my every word. So what? You know, it doesn't... So that changed me a bit. And so... Um, I would find it difficult to dig that deep again if I had to. But perhaps I don't need to anymore. I don't think I would need to dig that deep again in my life or career, because I had to dig... Dig, dig so deep as a human being. I mean, it was uh, absolutely distressing. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. It was an experience so traumatic. But I think I, I've never really been someone who have a big relationship with the past, so I can't really remember it now. It really feels a little bit like it was someone else who did it. I had heard that once, uh, and I believe this story takes place in Kendall, I don't know if that if that's true, but I had heard that you on tour did an hour years ago to silence, and then at the end, this is a story that is told about you in dressing rooms, you did an hour yeah. to silence, I think and I then at the one. end you said, well, now is when I would normally do my encore, and then you did another 15 minutes and turned the room round yes. and got them on side. Is I that true? Think, yeah, that was up North Lancaster or somewhere like that. I had all sorts of ones like that. I had... Wait, I, I, mean, just, I just want to thank you for that story existing because yes. it's such a wonderful thing to I, hear and I to had inspire another the one. comedians. I had another one where um, there were like 200 people in the audience and it was hard, you know, and then I'd, I drove 100 of them away and then managed to keep the 100 who'd stayed not only on side in a kind of, but, you know, like, loving it, you know. I mean, I turned it so that they were just, in the palm of my hand, it was the greatest success ever, you know. Um, there were lots of gigs like that. Say, in 2010, I remember, so relatively recently, I remember being in the Edinburgh Festival and doing my bed and breakfast landlady piece, and... Or was it 2009? Anyway, it doesn't matter, but it was... Um, I would be doing it, and um, I was doing a play at the time. It was quite funny in this play, School for Scandal, and we'd get a lot of people just come along because they'd seen me in the play, and I think because of that, there was a lot of people who did it. It was much more out there than they were expecting. And um, lots of people would walk out, you know. I mean, there'd be loads walking out every night. Um, but then I would make the people who liked it on site, you know, I would say. Mm. And so the people who liked it, I would, I'd find the skill to, um, to make them know that we know the other people are leaving and it's all right that they're leaving because we like it and, and, this, and then that, that, that way anyone else wants to go, they can go, go, because the people who like it and we're all liking it. Even more extreme, 2004 in Edinburgh, I mean, I have the huge numbers where I would split the audience, half of them would leave and the other half would stay and all love it. And it was sort of, um, that's when I started to, um, to develop my own society, my own sort of fan base, the Guild of Connoisseurs, at around 2004 or five or something, because I remember doing some show in Soho and they said, oh, we're very excited, the people running it, 30 people have come especially to see you, which I was amazed because no one had ever come to see me especially I mean, 2003 or whenever it was. No one came to see me. It was just like, what, what? I mean, no one knew who I was, so I was amazed for a start. Anyway, there were about 60 people in the audience and the 30 people who 
other 30 people ruined it for the 30 people who'd come to see me. So then I thought, right, I need to um, draw upon these people who like it. So therefore I would have these postcard things that I would hand out after shows and people would say, oh, thank you. Oh, yes, I loved your comedy. It was, it was so brilliant. I want to see that again. And then it would be half and half. I would hand it to someone else and they'd say, oh, piss off, mate. You were rubbish. But I didn't care about those people. Again, it was another thing. I had to be very strong as a human being. God knows how yeah. I got through all that. But I didn't care because I thought it doesn't matter to me whether someone's really rude, and they were a lot ruder than I'd said there, said terrible things to me. I, I only cared about the fact that... I didn't care about 28 people saying it was rubbish. I cared about the four people so they liked it. Normally more than that. And so anyway... Then those people liked it. They would they would come and follow me and be on my mailing list, and then they would start to come to shows. Then I would start to do shows to those people in about 2006. That's when that started. And then I thought, right, this is much better. They've all come to see me, and then that was the beginning of it all, really. That's a really. I, I feel like that's a thing that people try to do nowadays. And you, and I think Henning as well, yes. are the people that stick in my mind as people who very quickly went, right, I need my audience, I need to contact my audience and bring them, bring, take myself out of the circuit and create my own circuit, my yes. own venue. How many, um, how many connoisseurs do you have at the moment? Well, do I don't you know? know, many thousands. I don't know the exact number. Um, but yeah, lots, you know, so it's nice. It means I can go and do a secret show, I can tell them of my tour, and they come, you know... So yes, and do you find, do you have you been on TV recently, other than in uh, like televised, you know, galas? Not so much. No, much. I've done quite a bit bits in New Zealand recently and things. I haven't really been on the te uh, British television for about three years, really, in a very major way. And is given your excitement about performing to your own fans, is that something that you still? desire or, yes. or would that slightly skew the types of people that came to see you yes i mean of course it would be good to be on the television more um absolutely um one would want to be on the right thing there are things i would like to be on and one waits and put me on really um what i so what i would say is um that, thank God, I've got my touring following. I'd rather have a touring following and not have any television than be on the television but not have that because I've seen that happen when people are on the television and they have nothing to fall back from as inevitably the fickle world of television can come on and off, you know. So one doesn't want to rely on it. Um, and, yes... Uh, there are sometimes, it is a double-edged sword sometimes appearing on television because sometimes it means a lot more people come to your shows and some of them, uh, it, it isn't for them, you know. They maybe like you on TV, but this is, you know, so, uh, so you have that aspect a bit. So um, sometimes one can find if one's been on television a lot, then sometimes the gigs are a bit harder because... Uh, for, for a while until some of those people are filtered out. But then, of course, you're probably making more money because you've got loads of people who've all paid money to come, you know. So, yes, 
uh, can be some uh, problems with being on television, but yes, I would like to be on television more. I'm not going to do that thing when people pretend, oh, no, 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 I don't care. No. Yeah, it would be nice to be on more um, because obviously my job is to reach more people and that's one of the ways of reaching more people. Um, so, yes, I would like to be on television more for that reason. I don't need to be on television more for the kind of sort of ego massage of, you know, oh, look, everyone to see me off the television. I don't think that my sense of self relies upon that. You know, I'm, over the years, I've been, at times, really quite famous and then on a sort of television way, and at times really not that famous. And in different places as well, I've been really quite famous in Australia and not so famous here, and I've been really quite famous in America at one stage, but not famous here, and then later I was really famous here, but not famous in America. So I, would, I remember, you know, 10 years ago in being in America, you know, and I couldn't walk around the street without people saying, oh, you know, and then a few years later, I was in America and no one was noticing me. But then as soon as there's some British people, they're like, oh, my God, we've got to go up the Empire State Building with you and all that. <laughs> so, um, so I take it all in my stride, really. Finally, then, is there anything you now could go back in time and say to the Paul Foot of 22 years ago that would enable that Paul to shortcut some of the worst experiences of those 13 years, those, those first 13 years? Is there, is there anything that you could have done differently knowing what you know now? Or was it simply in order to be, as you are now, both, reliable, both brilliant and reliable... Um, is there any way that you could have done that without going through 13 years of fire? Probably not, because obviously all those things are part of that learning experience and help one to be... I don't know. I mean, I suppose... I, don't, I suppose one could say... I mean, a lot of people... I, I, one thing I've noticed, a lot of the rules that seem to apply to a lot of comedians seem to be opposite to me. So a lot of comedians say, oh, you always learn from your bad gigs. I never learn anything from my bad gigs other than just sort of, you know, being strong internally. It was when I had my good gigs that I would find I could... Then I would, uh, you know, this was years ago, and the same would apply now. When I had my good gigs, that's when the ad lib would come and, the, and it would really flow, and I would say, oh, this is the way of doing it, and, oh, it really came across like this, and in this silly way, and that's the way of doing it. When it was a bad gig, I didn't learn anything other than I just didn't <laughs> to go for it. So I suppose if I had had the advice, I'd say, well, don't bother doing this, this and this gig, you know. And I suppose I remember in 1998, so that's 20 years ago, uh, my assistant agent at the time saying, well, you're not really a club comic, Paul, you're a theatre comic. And I, at the time I said, well, of course I'm not. I'm going to be a big success on the club circuit. That's what I dreamed of, being a... Little did I realise that as soon as I became a success on the club circuit, within about two months of becoming a success on it, I retired from it. Nor did I also foresee that the club circuit would sort of implode to quite a large extent. Um, but to me, you know, so I didn't really understand that, so I suppose I'd be able to explain that to myself better. Um, 
Yeah, it's interesting. How, like, a, lot, a lot of people will say, or they say, oh, I do these club gigs, uh, they say, because it's good to work in new material. To me, that's the opposite. If I'm doing a quite a tricky club gig, I'll have to be doing my most reliable, tried and tested, and I do my new material in front of my audience. That's how I find it. So it seems to be the opposite of how a lot of people seem to work in a lot of the cases. But... Um, so I suppose I would advise myself in those ways. So there'd be a few things I, sp I suppose it would be useful to say, well, it's going to be 13 years, and I'd know how long it's going to last. Yeah. And then I wouldn't have to um, uh, worry about how long it's going to last. Well, maybe that would be worse, though. Maybe it would be worse to know that it's going to be all that length, you know, 12 years in. I mean, one year in, to know there's another 12 years to come... So, I mean, all these things are totally hypothetical, obviously, so, because one can't go back in time. But, um, um, yes, I mean, I suppose, really, my advice to myself would be the advice I gave myself at the time and the advice I give anyone who asks me for advice, keep going. Which sounds so utterly trite, but that's one of the reasons I remember seeing... Um, there were comedians who started at the same sort of time as me, very talented people, and then they just gave up. Oh, well, I've got disillusioned, and all these other people, they're not as talented as me, and they're all on the telly, and what's the point of carrying on? Oh. They all stopped, so I carried on. So that would be my advice. Thanks, Paul. That's all right, Stuart. <laughs> so that was Paul. What a joy. What a joy to speak to someone who has devoted his life to comedy. How lovely is that as well? The idea of just people in the street, his fans and everything, and just just feeling like he is he's there for them. There is some phenomenal stuff. If it, A little bit in the in the extras, there's all of the, the Seven Styles stuff, and then another 15 minutes in which he talks about his dress code and talks about being nice to people in the street because he feels like he is their servant. And he almost has devoted his whole life to public entertainment to the extent that he doesn't feel like a normal human anymore. So, if, I mean, if you're, if you're hardcore and you really think you're, you're going to uh, enjoy getting your teeth into some really hardcore uh, self and uh, professional critical analysis, comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, and you can access all the other private podcast stuff there as well. Thank you for listening. Uh, I really enjoyed this one. We've got some crackers coming up. Scummy Mummies, Nick Thune. Uh, I'm doing Jen Brister shortly. Questions for Jen Brister, if you like, uh, at the uh, Comedians Comedian Facebook group. Um, and I'm going to get in the habit as well, just mentioning Facebook, of um, posting about each episode when it's released. And we'll have one thread, one post with comments per episode. The Raymond and Timkins one is up there. Hope you enjoyed that one. There's some lovely comments on that. And you can just tell me what you thought of the episode and you can suggest things. And um, I should say, for those of you who have not yet joined the Facebook group, I'm so proud of what a... Uh, benevolent community it is I very very rarely prune people out of it and I always I hate to do that because when you boot someone you don't get the chance to explain to them why they're doing it they just have to probably go ah, maybe I shouldn't have said that um, but with very limited uh, judicious pruning we've managed to create a really positive bit of the internet which I think is uh, a very nice place to be so if you would like to people have been using it loads loads recently so lots of stuff in fact why don't I just We've got time if you're still listening at this point. You probably... Uh, um, let me just show you the sorts of things 
we've been posting about recently. Um, we've been, someone was saying this clickbaity thing in a particular tabloid in the UK about Bob Mortimer and Paul Whitehouse versus PC keyboard warriors. And then there's some brilliant um, analytical discussion of it, which points out that it's nonsense clickbait and that's not what they said at all. Uh, that was interesting that someone posted. Um, someone was asking about the next up service that's kind of like Spotify for comedy videos. Um, I'm panicking about whether or not there's the apostrophe in the title Comedians Comedian Podcast uh, makes it harder for some people to find. Um, there's some administrative stuff. The Taskmaster Series 7 lineup is uh, revealed. Lots of comments on that. Um, some more uh, comments on Hannah Gadsby's Netflix special. Um, there's uh, information about tickets for a Bridget Christie TV pilot. Uh, and, and, how's this? There's the new Edinburgh Friend meetup plan. Let me, let me tell you this, and then maybe we won't post Amble today, because this is quite admin heavy. But if you've listened this far, as a little treat, uh, on, in Edinburgh, the 7th of August, on the Tuesday at 7.55, we, uh, that is everyone that clicked on the Facebook group for the Edinburgh meetup, which is open to anyone that is uh, aware of it, um, we're going to go en masse to Alice Fraser's Ed Fringe show, Ethos, uh, which is at the Underbelly, I think, but I'll give that a Google. Um, and then we're going to go uh, to the pub and meet each other at uh, 9 till 10 o'clock. And then at 10 o'clock, we're doing a live podcast with Alice and just us in the crowd. At the moment, there's 20 people signed up for that. It's probably going to be, we're probably going to be able to squeeze another, another 10 or 20 into the venue. So I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, Basically, it's all on you to uh, buy tickets, get tickets for Alice Fraser's show, meet up with those of us who are there. We will, I'll be there, and it will be apparent who we are. Join in that gang. We'll go to the pub. We'll all meet each other and hang out for an hour, and then Alice is going to come along, and we will go to a second location or a third location, and we will do a live podcast with Alice and just us in the crowd. That'll be good. Let's try that, and if that works, we might make that a thing. So all of the information for that is at facebook.com slash groups slash comedians comedian podcast. That'll do for now. I could amble. I'm reading this brilliant book called Raising Boys. Oh, I'll tell you. There we go. I'll tell you about Dad Camp. Um, I, oh no, let's, well, I'll tell you about Dad Camp in the postamble. This is the end of the episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to hang around, I'll chat to you. If not, speak to you next week. So Dad Camp started off kind of mentally as the idea of like, God, my stag do was a year ago and it was really good fun. Why don't we try and do it? I sort of mentioned to a few people who'd been on it, whether if they wanted to come and redo it. And of course, when, you know, of course, we'd all love to run around the place shooting each other with Nerf guns. But when it isn't actually someone's official special day, much harder to get away from your responsibilities, which I totally understand. So the idea then kind of filtered down to just being me uh, and a couple of close friends uh, in Bristol who went, who are also dads of two-year-old boys. So the three of us went off and had a little camping trip for a day and a half, just a tiny little micro camp while my wife and family were out of the country. Um, and they were uh, re- released temporarily of their obligations. And, um, and we just went and had a really wholesome kind of just going for a walk and sitting around a campfire and sitting in the moonlight and stuff and just to talk about... Uh, about boys and about how it wasn't you know <laughs> this sounds very yeah very planned let's go we're calling it dad camp with a very much tug-in-cheek but um it was just interesting because we've all come through the carnage of having a baby and how much that smashes up your life and now we've all got two-year-old boys two and a half nearly three and um we are starting to become aware of the awesome responsibility of bringing up a boy and helping him become 
a teenager and helping that teenager become uh, a man, a sort of a, a happy, healthy, mentally stable, positive, masculine energy, you know? And it, it, that is such an awesome responsibility that I, I, I obviously am at the very tip of trying to get my head around. And a particular book I would recommend to you, it's called Raising Boys. And as I talk to you, I'm going to quickly check on my Kindle and just tell you who wrote it, because uh, it's such a good book. I really recommend it. Steve Bidolf, Raising Boys, Why Boys Are Different. And and something is... Uh, I can't actually read the end of that from where this is, about this book. Right, why Boys Are Different and How to Help Them Become Happy and... And then once again, it gets cut off. Anyway, basically, Bidolf, B-I-D-D-U-L-P-H. Um, it's really good. I'm halfway through it, and... Um, it's making me think I should read a lot more books on parenting because if you want to do a thing you don't know how to do, there's there's a couple of couple of ways to do it, isn't there? You kind of go, uh, oh yeah, I'll, I'll, this is instinct. I'll do this on instinct and chat to people and get advice. And then there's like you read a book and you suddenly come away with twenty brilliant ideas. One of them is, um, and this is very, you know, we're not to this stage with my kid yet, but we've me and the Boutros have started having little kind of rough and tumble type games, and uh, which is my happiest time. I remember doing that with my own dad when I was a kid. I used to love it. And uh, we've started doing that. And one of Steve Biddle's suggestions is that as your boy gets older and you need to, you know, he needs that play to understand his own kind of emotional range and his own sort of physical power. And he will eventually get hurt or cross or, or whatever. And you need to, that's an important part of the play that you need to stop and explain, you know, you need to learn to manage these emotions. You need to sort of physically protect yourself. And then Steve's tip is that you say, can you handle that? And what a great way of saying, you know, what a great way of encouraging someone to take responsibility for their for their strength and for their emotions. Can you handle that? Because you're not going to get a kid saying, no, I can't handle it. You know, it, it's um, it's just really, it's just full of stuff like that. So a, a huge fan of that book. And um, I've really been enjoying it. I'm a good halfway through it. Mine will go horribly wrong halfway through, but I, I don't imagine it. I'm looking forward to the rest of that. And um, yeah, and so it was just a really satisfying time, like to go away with some men and become slightly inebriated and actually talk about our emotions, which is sort of quite well timed, given the the premise of some of my Edinburgh show this year. Um, there's a bit about how men can't really talk to each other. And uh, I suppose even I, I think of myself as having a decent degree of emotional intelligence, but even even I, but I certainly with even with that in mind, um, I I just find it like one of one of the ways I really struggle is I find it very hard to comfort someone if they're upset. I think that's a classic male thing. You try to sort of solve a problem rather than knowing how to just rub someone's back and say they're there, which is often what people in distress want, and um, and. You know, I find that very difficult, and I, I think of myself as having a decent amount of emotional intelligence. So there is only, you know, there is a huge, a huge horizon left to fill of of ways in which you can improve yourself and become better at communicating. And um, yeah, I don't know. Does that does that does that does that thought end in any with anything tangible? Probably not. Let's all try and talk to each other more, men specifically, um, and uh, yeah. <laughs> Suddenly I feel like I'm around a... You see, this kind of thing is probably done better around a campfire than on a podcast. But you get my point. Um, it was very satisfying. I'm very grateful to the men involved on that. And I hope we do dad camp again and make it bigger. So that's where I'm at 
at the moment. I hope that you are well and happy and communicating emotionally uh, with your nearest and dearest. And uh, I send you specifically uh, lots of warm, positive feelings at the end of this slightly sentimental post-amble. I hope you enjoyed the episode and uh, I hope you're going to be at Edinburgh and you can come along and see that Alice Fraser thing. I think that would be a really fun uh, group trip. I look forward to meeting those of you coming to that who I've not already met. Speak to you soon.